Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, May 8th, 2017. Why is he saying it like that? <laughs> My apologies. I'm just still recovering from the uh, worst Easter sermon of the year contest. Thankfully, we've handed that off to you. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of really crazy stuff being said out there, and Fighting for the Faith is like the tactical sword a program that teaches you how to tactically use your sword in pitted combat so that, uh, yeah, by that I mean your Bible, so that you don't end up being deceived by the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those who we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, and apparently whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, that's oftentimes how that works. So, like I said, this is, you know, have you ever seen a YouTube video of, like, one of those fellows that, like, specializes in, like, tactical pistol fighting or tactical rifle fighting? Apparently, in the, like, firearms community, yeah, there there's different levels of how to use a firearm. You, you, the, the general person... You know, from time to time, let's say they own a firearm, especially here in the United States. That's kind of a big thing. Uh, they own a firearm. Maybe they own a Glock or a you know 1911 pistol or you know something like that for home defense. So they feel like you know every now and then they need to make the trip out to the uh, the range, you know, and put the paper target up on that thing and then send it back to the 25 yard line and then put a few rounds through it, you know, just to kind of keep the trigger finger. You know, from feeling like it's too rusty, and 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 the idea here is, I mean, that that kind of makes sense, but that doesn't really teach you how to use a firearm in a, an emergency situation. You know, should you find yourself, you know, in a in a convenience store during a robbery, or you know, you find yourself at the mall during a, a terrorist attack or something like that. And, and so the idea here is is that there's fellows on YouTube, and I've seen a few of these videos, where they actually teach you tactics. Yeah, yeah the idea is is that there's more to 
using a firearm than, you know, pulling out the target and shooting a few holes in some paper. You need to know how to use cover and concealment. You need to have kind of a fighting attitude. There's, you know, there's like the five D's of defense, you know, and, and all this other kind of stuff. This is what they talk about. And and so the idea here is is that it's one thing to own a firearm. It's another thing to actually know how to use it in a survival moment, right? Well, Fighting for the Faith is like a program that teaches you advanced fighting sword tactics. And I say sword because Scripture refers to Scripture itself as the sword of the Spirit. This is the Word of God. And so um, if you're interested in keeping your sword clean, you don't want to get it dirty, you don't want to get it messy or anything like that, you don't ever want to cross swords with somebody who is teaching falsely and you just want to keep your head down, mouth shut, don't and don't rock the boat and just get along with everybody. <laughs> this program you're not going to like it. That that's all I got to say is because <sighs> over and again, you know, we pull out the word of God and demonstrate that through a tactical use of God's word, you take captive all those thoughts that have exalted themselves above Christ. You know, from those teachers and preachers and conference speakers and self-proclaimed prophets and prophetesses and apostles and apostolates and those put forward by the evangelical industrial complex who are teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to teach. And so this is in part, I mean, you have to understand that a lot of what we do here, it's educational, but it's also designed to be a demonstration of how this works. You know, uh, from time to time, I'll get the question from somebody who says, what do I say to uh, the person that I know who's a close friend of mine or a family member who's come under the sway of uh, of a false teacher? How do I help them? And the idea here is uh, rule number one, you can't open their eyes. It's God, the Holy Spirit, who has to open their eyes. And he does so through the written word. So become skilled at using God's Word tactically uh, in combat situations. I mean, after all, you're to put on the armor of God, right? And the sword of the Spirit, the written Word of God, is your actual weapon. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine, I mean, uh, you know, some fellow in the United States Marine Corps, you know, who uh, decided that he, he, he was going to put on all the tactical gear. He's got his plate carrier on, you know, the Molly vest and his camelback, and he's got his holster for his sidearm, and, and you know, and he's got the med kit, and he's got all the magazines in the proper place so that he can, you know, so that he can engage the enemy. And then he left his AR-15 back at home. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. And uh, and so the idea here is that uh, fighting for the faith is a tactical program. We teach you by example how to tactically use God's word against false teachers, false doctrine, and along the way you learn the truth and you learn that what God's word really says is so much better than what the false teachers are saying. You learn how to rightly divide law and gospel, understand how to proclaim sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and uh, and do that task of taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. So that's what we do here. And uh, And let's talk about 
what we're going to do today. Yeah, let's let's talk about where we're going on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, by virtue of the fact, uh, because of the occasion of my second appearance as a caller on uh, Michael Brown's program, second half of this hour, somewhere in there, we're actually going to walk through and do a debrief on what Michael Brown did. I mean, I basically, I called into the Michael Brown program, and maybe 20, 25 minutes prior to my appearing on the program, he had interviewed uh, Jennifer LeClaire, which I consider to be a complete blunder. The reason why is that Jennifer LeClaire is somebody who should never be promoted anywhere as a Christian as a Christian, as a Christian teacher, as a so-called prophetess, she is a woman who is dangerous and is a false teacher. And uh, and we've noted here that you know now on two occasions, once in writing and once on her podcast, she's been promoting the sneaky squid spirit doctrine. That apparently there's a sneaky squid spirit out there that wants to take over your mind and. And it's just absolutely absurd. It's it's far beyond what Scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't teach anything of the sort. Uh, scripture does teach that the devil and his demons are at work, but uh, sneaky squid spirit, I don't think so. And uh, and so I actually called into the Michael Brown program on Friday of last week and basically just straight up said, how is this, how is her teaching of the sneaky squid spirit qualitatively different then uh, Roman Catholicism teaching that uh, we need to pray to saints, we need to pray to the Virgin Mary, and uh, we need to buy indulgences, you know, things like that. And uh, and the best way I can describe it is no sooner did I ask the question than the tap dancing began. And uh, boy, I mean, he threw up every smokescreen, quickly changed the subject, tried to turn this into a a debate regarding cessationism versus, uh, you know, continuationism, which is not what this was about at all. Yeah, I mean, in fact, you can be a continuationist and still recognize that what Jennifer LeClaire is teaching, that ain't Scripture. It's not from God. It's not from the Holy Spirit. So uh, we'll be uh, we'll be doing a debrief on that second half of the first hour. And then to kind of help with the theme, if you would, what we're going to do in the first half of the first hour, uh, the first place that we are heading to is a Todd White's Lifestyle Christianity YouTube channel. And uh, we're going to listen to a portion of a message titled Commissioned to the Primary Mission. And what we're going to be listening for very specifically in this uh, in this video, we're going to be specifically listening to how he engages in like the, the common Pentecostal technique of driving a wedge between head and heart, as if somehow true relationship with God and true engagement with the Bible is, doesn't involve your brain. And uh, so we'll listen to the subtle technique that he uses for that. And uh, then we will head over to the International Church of Las Vegas as we listen to Pastor Tim. I don't know what his last name is, but Pastor Tim basically doing the same thing. We're going to be listening very closely to Pentecostal rhetoric, which is designed to create this idea that if you drew, if you grew up in, you know, you know, let's say a, a Lutheran church or a Baptist church or maybe a Presbyterian church, yeah, and that somehow 
you weren't being taught all there is to know about Christianity. Yeah, um, they kind of conveniently left out that part about engaging the Holy Spirit in relationship and things like that. And he's going to give a por- portion of his testimony, which is a very common testimony that you hear in the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements. All of them are designed on purpose to you know to basically make a person who has not been a part of the Pentecostal movement begin to doubt that uh, their pastors or Sunday school teachers taught them the full counsel of the Word of God. The way it generally is taught is that they're afraid of this doctrine you know, regarding the Holy Spirit, and this is why they don't teach it. And that's not the truth at all. But uh, So we're going to listen closely to the rhetoric. And then, like I said, second half of the first hour, we're going to be listening to uh, Dr. Michael Brown and I have our second conversation via his uh, radio program. I was a caller, and uh, we'll listen and review what it is that he did and the tactics that he in- engaged in in order to, <laughs> let's just say, um, avoid answering the question directly because, I mean, I don't think he wanted to be rude to the woman he had just interviewed on his program. And, of course, I did not give him an easy question. This was a hardball question, inside curveball, if you would. And uh, and then in hour number two, we're going to be reviewing a sermon uh, from Audacious Church by a gal by the name of Hannah Adkins. By the way, God's word for, strictly forbids women from actually preaching in Christ's church. Uh, we're going to listen to Hannah Adkins as she uh, uh, delivers a message titled The Conversation Before the Conversation. And it's a look at the story of the woman uh, it, with the issue of blood whom Jesus heals, um, but uh, quite unbeknownst to him until the healing occurs, and how she basically takes this text out of context in order to turn it into a proof text for the the thinking that you need to be engaging in in order to achieve your breakthrough, which is not what this text is about. So uh, that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I strongly recommend you make yourself comfortable. we got a lot of ground we need to cover, and since we're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update, let's do this. Oh, hallelujah. Get up right now. Uh, Robert Tilton and Hubaba Kanda. So uh, we're heading over to the YouTube channel of Todd White, who literally uh, got his start in ministry with the help of Patricia King, uh, best way I can put it. And uh, we're going to be listening to a portion of his message titled uh, Commissioned to the Primary Mission. And uh, we're going to pick up where he is on stage 
on his knees, kind of praying, meditating, whatever that it is that he does. And then we're going to listen closely for the indoctrination technique that he's going to be engaging in, where he's going to drive a wedge between uh, your head and your heart. Yet, Scripture says that all who worship God are to worship him in, you know, in thought, mind, and deed, in, you know, it's a complete thing, if you would, spirit and in truth. Yeah, you commit, you know, uh, you you get the idea. But uh, here is uh, Todd White. Uh, Here we go. Amen. Uh. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to pour my heart out for a few minutes. And I've already wasted a couple, but not really. Because if I just seek him... With everything that I do, he's alive, he's living. He's, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Which means that when I look into the Bible, when I look into that word, it's actually looking at God himself. It's looking into the face of God and no one can look into the face of God and live. Uh-huh. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah this is going to be an interesting segment. Yeah, we worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. You get the idea. There's not going to be a wedge between them. And already he's beginning to sound like he's been to the Bill Johnson school of absurd profundities that, uh, you know, so let me see if I got this straight. So in the beginning was the word, word was with God. The word was God. That means that every time I open up the Bible, I'm looking in the face of God and nobody can look at the face of God and live. Yeah, I don't know where you studied logic, but that's not how logic works. Listen, I was a guy that never read a book before. I couldn't read. So when the Bible was introduced into my life, I came out of 22 years of addiction and atheism and hatred and anger. And I never could read because my brain couldn't comprehend. I'd forget everything. So when I started to read this, it was like, it didn't make any sense to me. But no books did. But this Bible's not meant for your brain. It's meant for your heart. Because your heart can take you places your brain can't fit. Um, what? It's not meant for your brain. It's meant for your heart. Where in Scripture does it say that? Again, those who worship the Lord worship him in heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That being the case, I would argue that Scripture is for both head and heart, for both mind and heart. It engages your brain and also your emotions. It's not an either-or. But uh, what he's engaging here is is a classic, charismatic and Pentecostal false split. I mean, let me ask you, uh, do you have a body? You sit there and go, well, yeah, I have a body. Do you have a soul? Yes. So which are you? Are you spirit? Are you body or soul? The answer is I'm both. Oh, okay. Did God give you a mind? Yes. Did he give you a heart? Yes. So the Bible's only written to engage your heart and not your mind? Well, of course, you've got to be spiritual. Wrong. Yeah, we worship the Lord our God with all of our strength, with all of our mind, with all of our heart, all of our soul. What he's doing here is teaching a false doctrine. And one of the reasons why it's so important within the charismatic movement to turn your brain off 
is because what happens in the charismatic and Pentecostal movements are patently absurd. They are utterly irrational, and they are contrary to God's Word. And if you, and if you have, have one of those moments where you open up your Bible and you realize, whoa, 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 what I'm being taught in my Pentecostal charismatic church contradicts the written Word of God, and you decide to go to your pastor or your leader or maybe somebody like Todd White, and you say, dude, I, you know, I was just reading in God's Word, and what you said was totally contradicted by the Word of God. You know what they're going to say? You have a religious spirit. Uh-huh, yeah. So, And you've got to turn that mind of yours off. I have to fix this because this is messed up. It's, it's true. I don't just get into the Word to try to memorize the Bible. I get into it to actually commune with my Father. See, God doesn't just want us to memorize the Word. He wants us to become the very Word that we're reading. You are to be a living epistle known and read by all men. Everywhere you go, people should want to have a relationship with Jesus because you're walking out the Word. You're not walking out religion. Religion hurts people. Unless it's religion that they describe in the Bible, which is caring for widows and orphans and keeping yourselves unspotted by the world. That's that. Now notice what he's doing here. He's literally categorizing those who use their minds and have their minds engaged when they're opening up their Bibles. He's accusing them of being religious. Yeah, um, but it's again very strange. Let me let me read out the verse in question that I keep referencing, so that you actually have the biblical address for it. And um, he, here's what it says: Luke ten twenty five. A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. He said, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" He said, "Then well, what's written in the law? How do you read it?" He answered, "You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind." And your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, yeah, you've answered correctly. You've answered correctly. Jesus is a firm believer in worshiping the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Uh-huh, mind. Yeah, that's, that's part of the, the idea here. So our mind isn't something that we turn off. Yet, uh, well, Todd White here is basically teaching, if you're worshiping God with your mind and you're opening up your Bible and you're reading it with your mind, that's religious. N- n- no, it's, and by religious, he means that somehow this is contrary to having a relationship with God. I mean, Todd White is one of these fellows. He has a relationship with God, but he's not religious, which means he keeps his mind out of the equation, apparently. Lovely. But keeping yourself unspotted by the world doesn't just come because I've read a bunch of what's in here. It's because I've actively become what's in here. Are you with me? No, I'm not. You're making a false dichotomy and not even a biblical one. Which biblical text are you exegeting again? I don't, I don't have any spectacular message. I just, when I said that, God, you would make people normal, I meant what I said. Uh, to me, normal is not just studying this word so that I can come up in front of you and impress you. Now, the important words in that last sentence were these. To me. Mm-hmm. To me. Yeah, see, the, the question is not what it means to 
you. The question is, what does God's word say? So let me back this up so you can hear it again. He says, to me, what's important is... I don't, I don't have any spectacular message. I just, when I said that, God, you would make people normal, I meant what I said. Uh, to me, normal is not just studying this word so that I can come up in front of you and impress you. That's not normal. That's abnormal. That's See, to me, that's normal. Now, the question is, how does God's word define normal? And in order to, dis- to arrive at that answer... You're going to have to read God's Word and comprehend it and apprehend it with your mind and your heart. on a show. It's not about a show. You know, yesterday I get on a plane and I'm sitting. Uh, there's a huge convention in town. It's a denomination that's doing some huge convention. And Yeah, denominations are bad, apparently. I sit down on the plane beside this man. And, and he's dressed up in a, in a nice suit and... And tie, and he looks amazing. And I'm not against looking amazing. I wear suits. I I do. I do. I just I'm I'm talking to him. I sit down, and and he looks at me. I have a guitar on my back, and he goes, "Hey, man." He goes, "I like music." He goes, "Music's what makes the world go round." And I said, "No." I said, "Music doesn't make the world go round." I said, "Jesus makes the world go round." And he said, okay. Yeah, look at how he put that denominational guy right in his place. See, the problem with that denominational guy is he was way too much religious with his brain. And he just looked at me. Now, he's a pastor. He's a pastor of a a certain denomination. Because I'm not trying to drag a denomination through the mud because Jesus didn't say, go make a bunch. He just said, worship me. Worship my father. He paid a price for us to have a relationship with the Father. So I'm sharing with him that that instrument that I have, I just, I play worship. He goes, well, I actually preach the word. And I said, yes, sir. I said, that's awesome. And I said, I I just bring my guitar so that in my bedroom, I can actually have communion with God and worship God through the Holy Spirit. But when I'm... Yeah, so notice here the way the story unfolds here. You know, that, that poor denominational pastor, he's totally blind because, you know, he, he preaches the word. But see... Todd White, he doesn't preach the word. He just grabs his guitar and he has communion with God. Oh, okay. The Holy Spirit. It, it got weird. But, but it shouldn't be weird. I mean, you can't worship Jesus without the Holy Spirit anyway. So it shouldn't be weird when I talk about the Holy Spirit. See, some people... Look, we can't afford to, as the church, as a spirit-filled church, we can't afford to be so heavenly minded that we're earthly flaky. We can't, we can't afford to be so focused on heaven and so in worship that we can't be productive. I mean, we need to do our jobs as unto the Lord and not for people, but we need to be possessed by the Holy Spirit. We need to be possessed by the living word, possessed with him. And we need to flow with him and function with him and have relationship with him. Jesus walked and he, everybody desired him. In him was the light of men. The light of men was in Jesus Christ. In Jesus. And then Jesus tells us in the gospels that we are the light of the world. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then he says, now you're the light of the world. It's in the Beatitudes. It's amazing. It's the attitudes of being. It's my... What? Attitudes. It's who I am because of what he did. 
Because if I see what he did to make me who I am, I'll never try to do to be. I will just be to do. And all of a sudden it's. Yeah, this shows that he needs to apply his brain a little bit more to the Beatitudes. He has no clue how to exegete them. You, you get the idea. And so this is a, an important um, dichotomy, false dichotomy that uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics make. The dichotomy between heart and mind, as if somehow mind gets in the way of true communion with God. So you got to turn that mind off because... To engage God's word with your mind, that's religious. But to turn your mind off and just commune with God with your heart, oh, that's relationship. No, that's not what Scripture teaches at all. But in order to see that, you would have to understand how to use both your heart and your mind in rightly understanding what is revealed in God's word. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to hear from Pastor Tim and then we'll do a debrief on my second appearance on the Michael Brown uh, Firing Line program. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Doesn't it bother you how some Christians are quick to argue about theology? Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Wait a minute. Did you catch the double standard in that statement? What double standard? You just said that Jesus didn't die for correct theology. Yeah, so what? Do you believe that statement is accurate? Of course I do. So if you think that statement is accurate, would it be safe to say that you think that statement is correct? Of course I think it's correct. That goes without saying. If I think the statement is accurate I obviously think it's correct. I wouldn't have made the statement if I didn't think it was accurate or correct. Did you notice that your statement was making a theological point? Well, yes, I suppose it was. So let me see if I've correctly understood the statement you made. Okay. You said it bothers you how some Christians are quick to argue theology. Yes. That's what I said. It sounds like you're saying that it bothers you that some Christians argue theology in order to prove that something that you believe or have been taught is not correct? Well, um, yes, I guess that's what I was saying. But then you made a theological argument to try to prove that Christians shouldn't argue theology. Well, um, yes. So, on the one hand you say that it bothers you that Christians argue theology in order to prove your theology wrong but then on the other hand... You turned right around and employed a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's cheating. 
you can't use a theological argument in order to prove that arguing theology is wrong. That's like using logic to prove that logical argumentation is wrong or using a mathematical equation to prove that using math is wrong. I knew it. Knew what? You're one of those people. What do you mean by those people? You're one of those people who loves theology more than people. What on earth are you talking about? You're a close-minded blogger who lives in her mother's basement and spends every day in her pajamas on a beanbag typing away on a laptop while eating cheetahs and drinking Mountain Dew. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that those who are trying to drive a wedge between your heart and mind and say that your mind gets in the way of true relationship with God, they're liars. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute on amount that you pick. That's right. There are four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunter, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. And then Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a fantastic way to support Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. The reason why is it gives us the ability to have a a predictable financial foundation month after month after month so we know how to properly budget, plan our next uh, exploits and things of that nature. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, the way you do that is by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, let's reset. We're still under the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update umbrella, but uh, let's reset the table since we took our break. Here we go. So I was having this wedding, and and we had... Well, we didn't have, we had Shabbat. 
believe it's true. That's uh, Heidi Baker and Shubba. So uh, we're heading over to the International Church of Las Vegas. Yeah, the uh, International Church of Las Vegas. Seems like an oxymoron to me. And we're going to be listening to Pastor Tim. That's all I know. I don't know what his last name is, but Pastor Tim is uh, giving the message, and we're going to listen to a portion of it as he kind of gives the standard Pentecostal charismatic testimony of, you know, he grew up in a Bible-believing church. I believe the Bible. He's going to, oh, assure everybody the Bible's important. But apparently he he wasn't getting all of Christianity. And so, yeah, and, and the reason why is because despite the fact they taught the Bible at the church that he grew up in, they weren't operating in the signs and the wonders, so clearly they were missing something. Yeah, I'll let him explain. Here's Pastor Tim. And uh, Tonight I want to invite you to be a part of something, and many of you already are, but I'm going to bring uh, revelation, a little bit of revelation to it. But I want to invite you to the Fellowship of the Burning Hearts tonight. I want to talk to you about the identity of the church and its function, uh, as I see it in Scripture. But before I do that, I want to share with you uh, two stories of me growing up and with with me having an encounter with God. And I grew up in a uh, uh, an independent Bible believing church. Come on, friends, can I get a witness on that? I grew up with uh, my grandparents were mission missionaries. Uh, in the United States for the deaf and hearing impaired. And, uh, they, and I've, I've shared this story multiple times with you. Uh, but I grew up learning the word. I grew up memorizing the word. I grew up, uh, with my grandfather teaching me the word. As a matter of fact, when I was nine or ten years old, over one summer during my summer break, I would get up and I would go to my grandparents' house, and my grandmother would fix me my breakfast, and I would sit at the table, and my grandfather, one entire summer, gave me a verse-by-verse exegetical study of the book of Hebrews when I was nine or ten years old. And so the word was very, very real to me, and it was very important to me. It was very significant to me, and I went to a Bible-believing church. Now, all of this, a Bible, 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 is to say, I don't think the Bible is bad. I uh, I think the Bible's important, but remember what he said. But he had an encounter with God. I mean, it's one thing to read your Bible. It's another thing to have an encounter with God. I would argue that to read your Bible, since all Scripture is God-breathed, theonoustos, and that all Scripture is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that to encounter the living God is to read your Bible. Mm-hmm, yeah, but notice he's creating a dichotomy here, false split, if you would. Does anybody know of a Bible-believing church that you are a part of? 
Thank you for that underwhelming response. Thank you so much. I went to a Bible-believing church, and I learned Scripture, and I understood Scripture. And as a kid, I grew up in, in Bible school, and I did Bible bees. And uh, we, you know, we had competitions of who could turn to a, a specific reference the fastest and all of that good stuff. And I don't know if, uh, if I won every time, but I was up in the top rankings. Thank you very much. Um, I learned the books of the Bible when I was young. The word was very, very important to me. And uh, I went to a church that believed in it, but also went to a church that was very um, religious and legalistic in its approach to things. And, and uh, I, I found um, as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, that some of the older folks in the church um, weren't very nice. Can I just be honest with you? They weren't. They weren't very nice. <laughs> and, you know, I think they, de- they measured the degree of their spirituality by the size of the droop on their mouth almost. It was, it was interesting to me. And I, I wasn't afraid of too many people, but I was afraid of certain people. And I can remember I was the kid that I was a kid that didn't want to go to children's church. I wanted to stay in church. Now, considering the fact he said independent, it makes me wonder if the group he's referring to are the independent fundamentalist Baptists, which are really known to be quite legalistic. So much so that uh, I know those who've grown up in the independent fundamentalist Baptist churches And uh, when you point out that we are saved by grace through faith alone, uh, and then you like go to a you know to a book of the Bible like the Epistle to the Galatians, there are independent fundamentalist Baptists who say that the Book of Galatians does not apply to Christians today. It only applied to the Galatians back then because its teaching of the proper distinction between law and gospel. And uh, that we are saved by grace, not by works, contradicts what they believe. And so we got a problem here, and that is is that it sounds like this fellow is a likely candidate for having grown up in a legalistic expression of Christianity. And I have to kind of put it that way. Um, But, you know, legalism is not Christianity. We are not saved by our works, and those who believe we are saved by our works have denied the gospel of Christ as being sufficient. And so now we've got an issue. And and listen, I, I totally get this. I spent a lot of time as in my childhood in the Nazarene church and talk about legalistic. Yeah, I mean I I mean I got saved again and again. I mean got I got born again 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 again. Like every time they'd have an altar call, I would go and get born again 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 again. Because they believe that, you know, if you ask Jesus into your heart and then go out and intentionally sin or, you know, engage in something that's a terrible sin that you lose your salvation, so you have to be born again, again, again. And so, you know, it was like, it was constant revivalism. And so I understand what it's like to spend time in a legalistic church. The solution to that is biblical Christianity, though. Um, but where he's going to go with this is a problem. It's really a problem because, again, this is kind of the stories that Pentecostals tell in order to justify the unjustifiable that goes on amongst the amongst them
stopped and listened to the message from the pastor. And I was seven or eight years old, and the front row was reserved for deacons. Can I get a witness on that? But I would sit on the front row, and the deacons would make room for me. But uh, And I remember one time chewing gum in church... And I was chewing gum, and this old guy came from about the fourth or fifth row right in the middle of service, and he looked at me with a scowl on his face and said, Spit that gum out, boy. I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, I was so afraid that I had broken the rules of the church. Can I get a witness on that? Man, it was crazy. But my experience with church was significant because it was the church that I grew up in that gave me a love for his word. I had great pastors who taught us the word. Dr. John Yarbrough uh, was an amazing man of God in my life. He was the man that I gave my call to the ministry under when I was, I felt like I was called to preach when I was seven. Isn't that crazy? And I was hungry for the word and those things were amazing to me. And I'll cherish uh, those times as a child. But as I grew older... Did you catch the butt? Yeah, see, that's the thing. I'll cherish all of that butt, which means that all of that lip service that he gave to the importance of the Word of God, he's saying as he grew older, he outgrew that and realized, yeah, the Word of God's not sufficient. I was reading things in the Word that I was not experiencing. I was reading elements of the Word, stories about the New Testament church that I... Yeah, I still haven't experienced walking on water. I haven't raised anybody from the dead. And by the way, all the people in the Pentecostal movement who claim that they've raised people from the dead, there is no documented evidence to support their claims. Um, yeah, so we got a problem here. So, and this is how it starts. It's like the somehow belief that the signs and wonders that we see in the early church, or even in parts of the Old Testament, now keep in mind that in the Old Testament, there are long stretches of time where there are no miracles, no signs, no wonders, not even a prophet. And... You know, that's just how that went down. And so what did people do when there were seasons where there was no signs or wonders or no miracles? They trusted in and believed the written word of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how that worked. And even within, you know, the book of Acts and in the New Testament itself, there were a lot of miracles early on in uh, in the Christian church. But as the church spread and matured, and as the written word of the apostles uh, was beginning to be circulated, yeah, we see a decreasing in the uh, in signs and wonders. So much so that the apostle Paul wrote to young Pastor Timothy, who was apparently suffering from a stomach ailment, that the apostle Paul did not send him an anointed prayer hanky that he might be healed by it. Nope. He told him to uh, take some wine medicinally to help ease his stomach pains. Uh-huh. It's absolutely true. And then, you know, James says that, you know, if you're sick, you know, the the elders can come and anoint you with oil and pray. Yeah, but there was no guarantee of healing at all. So the the issue here is that 
within the Pentecostal and charismatic mind is this belief that somehow the signs and wonders that we see at the at the outset of the church you know from Pentecost in the early years of Christianity that that it, their their primary belief is that is supposed to be normative it's supposed to be normative so apparently the church is doing something wrong if that isn't a normal part of a christian's experience now i would basically just point out the fact that the holy spirit gives signs and wonders when and where the holy spirit wants to give signs and wonders that there was no method there was no technique there wasn't no there was no leaning into or activating or any of that nonsense uh, regarding these signs and wonders. They accompanied the preaching of the gospel, and they occurred as the Holy Spirit caused them to occur. And, you know, and so the idea here is, is that, um, you know, when the Pentecostal movement basically says, you know, listen, those Bible-believing churches, you know, the people who are religious and engage the Bible with their minds, which apparently is a no-no, um, that uh, that uh, they're really missing out, and they are they are purposely or uh, unintentionally, it doesn't matter. They are doing something wrong or incorrect, which is leading to and resulting in the stifling of the of signs and wonders. And if they would just do the right things, then the spirit would begin to move in their midst and give them signs and wonders. But over and again, we've demonstrated literally almost in over the in, in the in the almost ten years that we've been on the air. It'll be ten years next June. Uh, in the ten years that we've been on the air, that over and again, you show me somebody who claims to be operating in signs and wonders or prophetic utterances or things like that, and I'll show somebody who is habitually, chronically, and terribly twisting the written word of God over and over and over and over again. But again, this type of message is designed to kind of bolster the, you know, to bolster the masses, you know, to kind of keep the fold the the fold confident that these signs and wonders are from God and to create this idea that oh, those people in the Bible believing churches, they got the Bible, but man, they don't have it all. Yeah, they they're doing something wrong and that's why there are no signs and wonders. That, that I love to read, but wanted to experience. I love to read about them, but I wanted to encounter them. I wanted to experience them. I, I wanted to see the miracles that were talked about in the Gospels. I wanted to see the miracles that the church was participating in the book of Acts. And I was hungry for those things. And, and Right, yeah. And so that's the reason why they apparently happened in the book of Acts is because the people were hungry for them, right? Wrong. The Holy Spirit gave them as the Holy Spirit decided to. And, you know, as much as people want to see a sign and a wonder, Jesus actually rebukes the Pharisees that that says that it's an adulterous and wicked generation that seeks a sign or a wonder. Uh Uh-huh. I'm just saying, yeah, that's what Jesus said. Or certain justifications as to why we weren't seeing certain things in Scripture in my particular denomination, in my particular church. And I can remember being 21 years old, 
being desperate for something more and hungry for something more. Now, mind you, I was a young man who knew the word. I was a young man that got saved at a very young age. I was a young man who got called to ministry. I was a young man who loved the church and loved the word, but there was something significantly missing in my Christian walk. And I couldn't put my finger on it. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. And I was longing for something more and crying out to God. And I can remember a particular time in my life where I became so desperate. I said, God, you have got to intervene in our behalf. You've got to intervene in my life, Lord Jesus. I'm missing something. I felt like there was a component to this walk in Christ that I didn't have in my life. I knew the word. I was word focused and word based, but there was a portion of my life of my Christian walk that I felt like there was a void and an emptiness. And I went to a a, a place, a location, and a, a conversation ensued with this complete stranger. And I, for whatever reason, I felt like sharing with this particular stranger my experience in life and my experience in church. And the guy that I was talking to was just smiling at me the whole time. And when he got a word in edgewise, he said, I need to invite you to to do something. I need you to trust me. I know that you don't know me, but I need you to trust me. And I, I said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want to invite you to my church. It's a brand new church. It's just started. It's on the other end of town and uh, on the on the other side of Knoxville. And, and I know it's going to be a little bit of a drive for you, but I want you to come to my church. I feel like God wants you to, to come to my church. And I remember coming to this church and Cheryl and I were dating at the time. We, we uh, were, I, I knew she was the one, but I hadn't asked her to me, ask her to marry me yet. And we were both searching and hungry. And so we went to this church and I remember standing at the front of at the, fr- at the back doors of this church saying, I don't know what's going on with this church. I feel a draw to it. I don't know what's happening, but we're so notice everything is feelings based at this point going to mess around. We're going to go in this church and we're going to sit on the front row and we're going to see what this place is all about. So we went to the front of the church and we sat and, and, um, I'm making a very long story short, but we sat on the front row and a lady got up and began to lead worship. Now that broke my paradigm big time right there. Yeah. And in many charismatic churches, not only do women lead worship, they actually preach. And so notice what he said. That broke my paradigm right there. No, the issue is when you start having women uh, doing the leading in church, that doesn't break an individual's paradigm. That breaks what God's Word literally reveals. And so notice he's being challenged, but of course he's feeling things. Nothing more than feelings Trying to forget My feelings of love Teardrops They're rolling down on my face Trying to forget 
Dawson and uh, a tribute to feelings. Yeah, and see, that's the problem here is we don't get our theology from our feelings and we don't get our theology from our experiences. When your experiences and your feelings are contradicted by the written word of God, you need to listen to the written word of God and cause your feelings to bend the knee. Stop trusting them. God's word doesn't err. On the stage leading worship in, in my denominational church, that was already a break in my paradigm. But this lady was leading worship in the church, and, and, and I was so hungry, I, I felt something on it. And at one point, she told us to lift our hands, and we lifted our hands, and we sang that, you know, that old worship praise song, whatever it's called, Majesty, Worship His Majesty. How many of you remember that song? Guys, at my age, that was cutting edge. I'm sorry, that, I, that must have dated me, but... But that was cutting edge. And I remember opening my heart to something new and fresh. And I remember... Opening my heart to something new and fresh. Apparently closing his mind now off from what the written word of God says. Countering the spirit of the living God that day. I re yeah, you've already described your experience enough that it's easy to identify that there were things that were going on there that are contrary to the written word of God. Why would you open your heart to something that with your mind you would know is false? And so you kind of see how the paradigm works, and this is one of the important ways in which people are led into deception within the Pentecostal movement, and the reason for it is quite simple, because they are instructed, and over again, the thought is reinforced, you need to turn your brain off, you need to trust your feelings and the experiences that you're having, that's the Holy Spirit, even if what's going on contradicts the written Word of God, and that's the problem. All right, moving along, next segment. Uh, we're, we're still under the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate. Uh, we're going to head over to the Michael Brown uh, Firing Line program. And on Friday of last week, he had as one of his guests on the program Jennifer LeClaire, the uh, senior editor of Charisma Magazine and the... Um, the purveyor of false prophecies, weird uh, revelations from God, 
as well as the uh, the now sneaky squid spirit doctrine. And uh, we would like to note that no sneaky squid spirit formed against you will prosper. You can find this in Second Tentacles chapter two verse twenty three. Anyway, um, I I went on the uh, Michael Brown program as a caller uh, for the express purpose of literally, basically challenging Jennifer LeClaire's credibility uh, to be on his program. She should not be promoted anywhere as any kind of a sound teacher or as a Christian in, you know, exegete or anything of the sort, because she's not. And I, you'll, well, you'll hear for yourself. I mean, I asked him a hardball question as it relates to uh, Jennifer LeClaire's sneaky squid spirit doctrine uh, which i'm at the at the time i phoned wasn't sure if uh, he was aware of but uh, as the conversation continued it became clear that uh, you know that what i was saying was true i think he might have even went on the internet and checked during one of the breaks but uh, here is uh, michael brown introducing me as uh, chris from grand forks north dakota on his uh, firing line, uh, line of fire uh, radio program. Here we go. Let's go to Grand Forks, North Dakota. Chris, welcome to the line of fire. Thanks for having me. I have a question about uh, Jennifer LeClaire's teaching. Yes, sir. Uh, Twice in the last couple of months, once on Charisma Magazine and then last week on our podcast, she is warning people to be on the lookout for the sneaky squid spirit and claims that she was stalked by it and is actually trying to tell people in the body of Christ that they need to be wary of the sneaky squid spirit and that it may be stalking them. My question is, since I can't find a single biblical text that teaches about the sneaky squid spirit, how is this qualitatively different than like what Roman Catholic uh, doctrine does when it creates doctrines like indulgences or prayers to the Virgin Mary and things like that? Yeah, it's a very fair question, Chris. Thank you. And Jennifer was on with me in the uh, half hour before this. Number one, you're talking about uh, making a doctrine like praying to Mary and indulgences of this is how you get forgiveness for people in purgatory. So it's one thing to make a doctrine out of something. It's another thing to say beware of something that's happening spiritually. Uh, The second thing is, would this be different in content from the Bible talking about Leviathan described as a multi-headed serpent? Now, I, I'm going to interrupt here because, you know, now I have the ability to do so. And uh, one of the tricky things when you're on somebody else's program is you got to understand they got the microphone, they got the mute button. And so, you know, I'm tactically at a disadvantage on his turf, uh, so I have to make every shot count. And uh, so notice what he did there. He literally said, oh, there's a difference between dogma and saying that in the spirit, the, you know, the, the God is warning us about uh, a sneaky squid spirit. Yeah, no, actually, no. And uh, I'm going to stand my ground here. In Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus literally takes the, uh, the Pharisees to task, and they were heretics. Uh, because they were introducing doctrines that were not found in Scripture, not at all. In fact, Scripture warns us to not be, go beyond what is written. 
Um, but uh, here's what Jesus said to the Pharisees, Mark chapter 7. Now, the Pharisees, they gathered to Jesus and uh, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, and they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. By the way, there is no biblical commandment. You won't find it anywhere in the Torah or the prophets uh, as it relates to a command to wash our hands. Where was that command found? In the man-made doctrines. Mm -hmm. The man-made doctrines of the Pharisees. Now, did the Pharisees say, we made this doctrine up? No. They claimed that when Moses ascended Mount Sinai, he received not only the written Torah, he received the oral Torah. The oral Torah wasn't written down so that the Gentiles wouldn't know the whole truth. That's how they said it. And it was later written down, by the way. But the oral Torah is where you find the command to wash your hands. And it's in the body of work known as the tradition of the elders. And so they claimed that God himself gave the oral Torah to Moses and that he handed it down orally to the children of Israel, and they just happened to conveniently be the guys who were the recipients and uh, protectors of the oral Torah, if you would. And so it says then in Mark 7, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. There are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk? Listen, according to the tradition of the elders, which they considered to be from God, but they eat with defiled hands. And then Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And doctrine, you know, the the, the word for dos, doctrine is didaskalos. It literally means teaching. Okay, And then he says, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And I'm going to stand my ground and basically say the sneaky squid spirit doctrine, although Michael Brown claims that it's it's in a different category than Mary, uh, ver- prayers to the Virgin Mary and indulgences, because it's it's somehow the communicating of what the spirit is revealing to um, to Jennifer LeClaire. No, I'm going to basically say no. It is exactly the same as indulgences, prayers to Mary, and it has nothing to do with what the Spirit is saying to anybody. It is the commandment and the doctrines of a woman, Jennifer LeClaire. It is not found in Scripture. She has gone beyond what Scripture says, which Scripture absolutely forbids us to do. So she's leaving the Word of God, and literally setting up her own doctrines. Or Satan described as a dragon. Now, to be perfectly clear, Chris, obviously, uh, I you've never heard me talk about a sneaky squid spirit or, or anything of the sort, obviously. Yeah, and of course it's obvious. And the reason why he hasn't is because Scripture doesn't say that. And I think he knows that if he were teach, to teach the sneaky squid spirit doctrine, he would lose all credibility. But notice what he's not doing here. He's not repudiating the doctrine as false, unbiblical, 
or anything of the sort. He's distancing himself from it without actually repudiating it. And uh, I can't uh, verify a syllable that Jennifer said about that. That's obviously something to take up with her. But you can verify it. All you have to do is go to charismamag.com and type in Sneaky Squid into the uh, search bar. You'll find it. Or just look for her podcast. It's there in one of the titles, I think April 27th. But is she describing this as how she saw something in the spirit? Is that any different than seeing a dragon with seven heads and ten horns? Not necessarily. Well, actually, it is, because the vision that the Apostle John had of the dragon was clearly recorded for us in the Word of God. What he saw ended up getting recorded for us. So there is a qualitative difference between what what the Apostle John saw, which which he penned in the book of Revelation, and what Jennifer LeClaire is claiming to be seeing in the Spirit, uh, to equate the two would basically be to take Jennifer LeClaire's nonsense and elevate it to the same level as the Revelation that, uh, that John had, which led to the book of Revelation. No way. And if she's saying, I sense this, you know, what, what was she saying that this, quote, sneaky squid spirit was doing, sir? Stalking people, stalking Christians and believers and attacking their minds. Mm-hmm. Now, do, do you... the Charisma Magazine website. Got it. Okay. And, and by the way, for those who are not charismatic or for those who are mildly charismatic or for those who are strongly anti-charismatic, they would obviously point at this as, as something being very flaky or or unreliable, or why they're not charismatic. So I fully understand why there would be skepticism attached to this. Um, I point to it as an example of false doctrine, false teaching in the name of the Holy Spirit, going beyond Scripture and teaching things that are contrary to the Word of God and adding to the Word of God. Which, by the way, if you listen carefully to Charismatics and Pentecostals, they will over and again say that we don't receive revelation that adds to Scripture. And yet the belief in a sneaky squid spirit, by its very nature, claiming to be something seen in the spirit, adds to Scripture. Now, the teaching of you know, the biblical doctrine and regarding Leviathan, that is not an addition to Scripture. The, the spirit of Leviathan technically is mentioned in Scripture, and it's a picture of none other than the devil. Yeah, that's what Scripture reveals, but there's so little about it that all of the other doctrines uh, that relate to it, I mean, they become nonsense and a twisting of God's word. But nowhere are sneaky squid spirits mentioned. So this is not an example of flaky charismaticism. This is an example of a patently obvious human nonsensical adding to Scripture doctrine which totally undermines all of the claims that you know and the legitimacy and the believability that uh, Jennifer LeClaire is actually hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit when she says things like the angels of abundant harvest are being released at this time or the month of May that the word of the Lord for the month of May is mega there's no way she's hearing from the Holy Spirit. But Chris, just to understand where you're coming from, do you put aside what she said totally, okay? Do you believe yeah, that... Yeah, I do, and I'll, I'll give you the reason why. No, 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 hang, hang on. I didn't, I, didn't ask, I didn't ask my question. 
Now, by the way, I thought he said. I thought he asked me, "Do you put aside what she said?" Totally. I thought he asked that. That that was the question. He he, and so I didn't hear him properly there. Just wanted to know if you believe that there are demonic spirits that are at work today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Got it. So now at this point, he is uh, he's engaging in a smokescreen. He's he's starting to change the subject. And engaging in a little bit of tap dancing, if you would. In fact, I think this song kind of captures what's going to be happening next. Ooh, I love to dance a little sidestep. Now they see me, now they don't. I've come and down. Ooh, I love to sweep around the wide step. Cut a little swath and leave the people on. Ooh, I love to dance a little sidestep. That's right. Dance a little sidestep. That's what uh, Michael Brown's going to be doing here. I mean, the the right biblical answer would be, whoa, wait a second. I need to confirm what you're saying is true. Let's go to a break, and I'm going to check the Charisma Magazine website to see if she actually teaches the sneaky squid spirit is attacking and stalking people. It would have taken him all of 30 seconds to uh, Google that up and find it. And then, you know, and then you basically take a little bit of time to read it and come back and basically say, yeah, clearly Jennifer LeClaire is teaching doctrines that have that are not biblical and are additions to Scripture. That's all I needed to do. But that's not what he's doing. We've we've got to somehow now change the subject, blur the things, you know, kind of do whatever we can to. Um, you know, turn this into a, a debate about something else, you know, cessationism versus um, continuationism. But the reality is this. Even if you're a continuationist, there's no reason whatsoever to embrace or believe the sneaky squid doctrine or the woman who introduced it to the church. All right, so you do believe that. And do you believe that there could ever be a time of unusual oppression and and where, you know, you, you maybe maybe you're counseling people in a church as a pastor, right? And you find wow, ten different families are going through the same kind of attack. This is unusual. I think I'm going to preach about this and equip people better and say, hey, it seems people are getting. It's just like people getting harassed with thoughts of suicide that have never struggled with it. Do you think something like that could happen? Of course, I. Okay. Scripture is very clear that we need to put on the armor of God. And Got it. you only put armor on if you're in the middle of a battle. Got it. All right, so your your issue here would be the identification of this and the way it's being discussed? It's a little bit more than that. And Go ahead. This is, the point. this is the point that I think really needs to be fleshed out here. Over and again, I hear from the charismatic movement and leaders in it that these revelations that they claim that they're receiving from God, that they're receiving from the Holy Spirit, these impressions that they're receiving on their hearts, are congruent with Scripture and do not add to it. Mm-hmm. But now we have a new teaching, and you are fully aware that the word didaskalos, doctrine, is where we get you know where we get the word doctrine. It simply means teaching. That to teach that there is a sneaky squid spirit and define its actions and behaviors and its mo- and its methods and things like that. 
This goes way beyond, way beyond Scripture, and it is a doctrine. Whether or not it's officially recognized as dogma in a church's doctrinal statement is not the point. When somebody stands up or writes an article and says, God is showing me this, we as Christians are bound to believe when anyone is actually speaking from the Spirit of God. If God is speaking, we're duty-bound to actually listen and obey what he's saying. Let me just respond to that part. Okay. And so notice now, at this point, he's interrupted me. It's clear, it's clear where I was heading, and he didn't want me to get to my conclusion. Okay, I'm all for testing the spirits. New Testament tells us to. That's right. Scripture says to test the spirits, and just applying the test of 1 Corinthians 4, 6, to not go beyond what is written, Jennifer LeClaire, whatever spirit is speaking to her, fails the test. Right? Test the spirits. Mm-hmm. The New Testament tells us to uh, seek prophecy. It encourages that. Uh, there's absolutely not a, a text anywhere in the New Testament that tells us that prophecy is going to stop before the eschaton. Yeah, that's weird, um, because the New Testament actually makes it clear that in the past, God spoke by the prophets, and now he's spoken to us by his Son. Uh, that's the opening verses of the epistle to the Hebrews. But uh, in Daniel chapter 9, it specifically says that prophecy and vision will be sealed up. Here's what it says, Daniel chapter 9, 24 uh, the uh, angel interpreting the, uh, you know, something to Daniel says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. Atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness. This is a prophecy regarding the Messiah. But listen to this detail. And to seal up both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Yeah, the uh, prophecy of Daniel of the 70 weeks actually specifically says that once prof- uh, once iniquity is atoned for and everlasting righteousness is established in the era right after the Messiah in the 70 weeks, prophecy and vision are both sealed up. Yeah, that's what the Old Testament says. But uh, anyway, I, I digress. Let's continue. Prophecy to seek that gift, and it tells me not to despise it, but to test everything in First Thessalonians 5. There's not a hint that I get reading the New Testament that this is going to stop. First Corinthians 1 talks about the gifts uh, until Jesus returns. It reiterated First Corinthians 13 when we see him face to face. Yeah, whether or not, you again, you don't have to believe in cessationism. You do not have to believe in cessationism to say, Jennifer LeClaire is not a true prophet, that she has failed the test. Yeah, it's obvious she's failed the test. So uh, I'm just believing the word. The word tells me to encourage these things will, will not be needed, then we'll know perfectly. Uh, so uh, let's say someone speaks prophetically. You're, you're really praying for direction. You're praying about whether you should go to seminary. Uh, or, or whether you should uh, right now take a secular job to, to, to feed your family. And, and uh, I don't know any of this. I, uh, and I'm praying, and I said, Sir, I, I sense the Lord saying that, that right now you need to work your secular job. I don't know if that's relevant to you. And you say, Oh, man, that's what I was praying about. Now, this is kind of interesting. Yeah, and the reason I say this is because evangelicalism as a whole 
has a few things backwards, upside down and inside out. Let me explain. Okay, they believe that when it comes to the things of God, we have free will. When Scripture says our will is bound, but when it comes to the things that we actually have decision-making over, our will is bound and we need a revelation from God. This is backwards. I'll give you an example from, you know, like the book of Genesis. God creates man in his own image, and the first job that is given to Adam, God made all the animals, the first job given to Adam is what? To name the animals. Mm-hmm. So the idea here is, is that Scripture does not tell us that w- that when it comes to our decisions horizontally, that God is up there you know, making these decisions and we need revelation from God so we, we can know what his will is. No, that's not what it says at all. In fact, Scripture admonishes us to make good decisions based upon what the written Word of God says. And let me explain to you how this kind of then plays out. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we hear the Apostle Paul writing to young Pastor Timothy, and here's what he says, uh, chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in my life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while the evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every, not some, every good work. Now, by the way, our good works are done in service to our neighbor. Mm -hmm. So the word of God is sufficient to train us in righteousness so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. Work Now, the other part of this is uh, Matthew 28, paying close attention to what Jesus said. He said in uh, Matthew 28, "...all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you, and the only place I can go to find all that Christ has commanded me. As a disciple, the only place I can go is the Bible." the sacred writings. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so what Michael Brown is doing is basically setting up another category, another category of revelation that doesn't rise to the level of Scripture, but it rises to the level of psychic reading. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I don't know what my next move should be. Should I move to Minneapolis or should I move to Houston, Texas? I, I don't know which way I should go. Lord, which one did you choose? You're assuming something, that somehow you that this is a decision God has made for you. No, this is a decision that God has re- delegated to you to make. 
And the written word of God is already there to equip you for making this decision. Who should I marry, God? Pick one. Make sure she's a Christian. Or he. You get get the point? This is your decision to make, just like it was Adam's decision to name the animals. God delegated this authority to you. And so we got a problem here, and that is is that he's created this secondary uh, tier of revelation that doesn't rise to the, 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 the level of Scripture. So the sneaky squid spirit apparently is the equivalent of a psychic reading for the current season that we're in. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, I think you get the idea, but let's continue just a little bit more. That's that's a prophecy, a prophetic word, but it's not doctrine. It's not it's not adding to the Bible. It has nothing to do with adding to the Bible. It's just the gift of prophecy and operation. So you're describing something different, because, like I said, didaskalos is doctrine. That's what it is. It's teaching, and in two occasions within the past two months, Jennifer Leclaire has taught teaching that a sneaky squid spirit is, has stalked her, stalked a friend of hers, and could be potentially stalking other Christians. That is a doctrine. That's a teaching being released. Or, but, but, every church in Ameri- but, but Chris, every church in America teaches things that are not explicit in Scripture. All right. So now that is what we call, by the way, that's an ad hominem argument, but it's a particular type of ad hominem argument. That's the ad hominem to quoque um, logical fallacy. And for that, let me um, let me play for you the ad hominem video that we oftentimes link to uh, when people attack me personally. But listen to the different types of ad hominem arguments. And <clears throat> this, excuse me, this falls into the category of tu quoque. And the idea is this. I mean, even if it were true that every church in the world and in America teaches doctrines that are not found in Scripture... Does that make it right? And the answer is no, it doesn't make it right at all because Scripture has a clear standard. And the standard in Scripture is found in Titus chapter 1. Here's the standard. Are you ready? Uh, Paul writes to Pastor Titus. He says, I've left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint uh, pastors in every town as I directed you. And he gives the character qualifications. The guy must be a husband of one wife, above reproach. Children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery, not a drunkard, hospitable, self-controlled. You got that. Verse 9, though, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many insubordinate and empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So the standard is, in Christ's church, only that which is in accord with sound doctrine is to be taught. But Michael Brown basically says, well, okay, so sure, it's it's a doctrine. Sneaky squid is a doctrine. But every church in America teaches all kinds of stuff that isn't found in the Bible. This, by the way, again, is an ad hominem argument. Here's the ad hominem uh, YouTube video to help us understand this. Ad hominem is a Latin phrase meaning literally to the man. It refers to a logical fallacy, or in other words, a bad argument. 
Ad hominem is when someone uses a personal attack as an argument. This takes many forms, four of which will be covered in this video. The first is the abusive form. For example, John argues that because dark chocolate has antioxidants and most other candies only have sugar which rots your teeth, dark chocolate is therefore better than most sweets. Tim responds to this argument, Yeah, but you're a greedy jerk. Whatever John's moral character may be, Tim's response is not an argument. John may in fact be a greedy jerk, but that doesn't make him wrong. Another more common variant of this is the circumstantial form. For example, if Tim were to respond to John's argument saying, Yeah, but you work for the chocolate company. You're paid to say that. John may have been paid to make the argument, but that doesn't address the argument he was making. Now, if Tim were to respond to John's argument, Yeah, but I saw you eating a candy cane. This would be an example of the third variant of ad hominem, called tu quoque, which is Latin for you also. Being a hypocrite does not invalidate an argument. The fourth and final form of ad hominem is the guilt by association. This would be if Tim responded to John by saying, Nazis also believed dark chocolate was better, implying that, holding this belief, John is as bad as a Nazi. That still is not an argument. John may, in fact, be a Nazi, but that doesn't automatically make him wrong. It certainly doesn't address the issue at hand. Right. So here's the issue is that uh, Michael Brown now, uh, he's not only engaging in obfuscation, he's engaging in an ad hominem attack against me, known as the ad hominem tu quoque fallacy. And he's not addressing the issue. And ad hominem tu quoque is not an argument. Let me back this up. But, but every in church in America, but, but Chris, every church in America teaches things that are not explicit in Scripture. If you had a church and I was there for a year, I would be able to say, okay, here are 50 things that you teach. You say, no, this is not Bible, but this is what we practice, or here's an insight that we have, or here's the way we've understood this as we've looked at church history. So you're doing the same thing then, based on your definition of didaskalos. By the way, no, I don't. Anytime I teach something that this is not found in Scripture, I say, what I'm about to say is philosophy, this is not found in Scripture, we're not bound to believe this. Yeah, uh-huh, or I say this is my opinion. But when I'm working through a biblical text, I am preaching as if it's the very oracles of God, which we'll get to probably in tomorrow's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to have to break our um, <laughs> our analysis of my conversation with Michael Brown into two segments at least, but, uh, but you get the idea. We continue. So you're doing the same thing then. Based on your definition of didaskalos, you're adding to the Bible probably every time you preach or teach. Um, so, I would challenge you to listen to my sermons. They're posted online. Um, and you know, I would like you to point out to me the things where I have taught as my opinion, you know, actually what God would have us believe. And so but, right, I, no, I, but, but, but hang on. Saying, In terms of practice, do you have an order of service? Of course. Okay. Uh, all right. And, and do you, do every you teach? church has an order of service. All right, but but Paul gives us an order in First Corinthians fourteen that every, when you come together, this one should have a song, this one should have interpretation, this one should have a revelation, this one should have a tongue. He gives us the order of service in First Corinthians fourteen. If you don't follow that, now you've made up your own order. That's your own doctrine. You've added to the Bible. Only if the order of service in First Corinthians fourteen is a prescriptive order of service. 
And you know that's true. If it's prescriptive and that we're duty-bound as Christians to follow that order. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Stay right there. If it's descriptive, how come it doesn't describe your service? <laughs> now he's playing fast and loose. Yeah. And so he's he's engaging in all kinds of tap dancing. And we'll, we're, like I said, we're going to have to cut this up into two pieces. But suffice it to say that when we say a text, you know, the order of service in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, the question is, is it prescriptive in the sense that this is how a church service is to go and it must follow this specific order of service, otherwise it's not a Christian service? Prescriptive. Or is it describing? Is it descriptive? And if it's descriptive, yeah, then, then the idea here is it's, this is not a command and there's something going on in the text, but we'll save that for tomorrow. But uh, you know, because we're going really long at this point. But I think you get the point. I mean, Michael Brown. I mean, he like pulls out all the stops in order to not address the obvious issue, and that is is that Jennifer Leclaire is literally, specifically, unashamedly, undeniably gone beyond Scripture and is introducing doctrines into the body of Christ that are nowhere found in Scripture, can be supported in Scripture, all under the guise of this other type of revelation, you know, speaking what the Spirit is saying today, and that's not what she was doing at all. But we'll we'll continue this tomorrow. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pyre Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pyre Christian. Quick break, when we come back, we're heading over to Audacious Church as we listen to Hannah Adkins, who shouldn't be preaching at all, butchering the scripture um, regarding the woman with the issue of blood. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches.
Oi, Captain, we got ourselves a heretic. (laughs) (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. is to heretic, to R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Audacious Church. Hannah Adkins is the um, deliverer of said sermon, which God's word forbids straight up. The name of the message is The Conversation Before the Conversation. And she's going to literally not tell an entire story. She's going to tell part of a story found in one of the Gospels. Actually, it's found in a couple of the Gospels. And uh, turn it into uh, some kind of steps that we need to apply in order for us to uh, experience our breakthrough. Yeah, I wish I was making that up, but uh, I think you get the point. So let me go ahead and back off on the music, and without any further ado, here's Anna A- Hannah Adkins, uh, Audacious Church, Manchester in the UK, uh, the uh, conversation before the conversation. Here we go. And um, I was in my house, and I heard my mother came come out my mouth. Yeah, you know when you think, I will never say that to my children. It happened this week. Imogen, my four-year-old, only took four years. I hoped it would take longer, but Imogen, my four-year-old, came downstairs. She couldn't find something. I was busy in the kitchen. She caught me off guard. And she came in and she said, I can't find it. And I turned around to her and I said, but have you really looked? And she said, 
Yes. And then this is, then I said it. I said, if I go up there and I find it. And right then I heard my mother. And I also turned into my mother because I went upstairs and I found it. Walked in her room. The thing she was looking for was on the floor. But how annoying is it when you can't find what you're looking for? Especially if you know it's there somewhere. Keys. You know those car keys are somewhere in the house. Wayne will say to me, where did you last have them? Not helpful. Because if I knew, I would go. Normally, my keys are in my door, where I've left them. When I've opened the door with the kids' bags and everything, kick the door open. Anyone could come and rob them, steal my car, anything like that. I have also been known to lose my phone, my mobile phone. Numerous, all right, okay. I've also dropped it down the toilet quite a few times. Has anyone else dropped a mobile phone down the toilet? See that hand, let's see that hand. I've been asked to call in a moment for you and your bill payer. I lose my mobile phone. The other day I was uh, talking to my mother and I'm saying, yeah, one minute, I'll just find it. It's on my, it's on my diary. My, oh, I can't find my phone. And it took my mum to say, you are on your phone. It's so annoying when you can't find what you're looking for. Supermarkets, another thing, when you need something and you can't find it and you're trying to not ask someone, but you need it. It's not in the right place. Why would that be here? It shouldn't be here. Can you put things in order of how I make food? That would be very helpful. But isn't it annoying when you can't find what you're searching for? What you're looking for when you have a need that you can't find? And I think looking across the room tonight, I know because I know myself and I know my friends and I know us that there's needs and there's things that we're searching for in life that sometimes it's annoying because we can't find. You know, like job satisfaction. A sense of you making a difference. For some of us, maybe it's our health. We feel like we're searching for just to get better, but it's a need and we just can't get there. Maybe it's a breakthrough in our relationships. Sometimes you feel like you... So I can't find what I'm looking for. The U2 song comes to mind. I still haven't found what I'm... Take one step forward in the relationship and then three steps back. Searching for things that we just seem to not be able to find. Maybe it's a sense of purpose, destiny. You just have... Yeah, I haven't found a sense of purpose destiny yeah i'm looking for why am i here on this planet a need and i know personally that there are some people in the room that have well that's weird because you just said that you're a mom and you have a daughter we are created in christ jesus for good works ephesians 2:10 says So I'm pretty sure that the good works that you've been called to do by Christ involve taking care of your daughter. You're also a wife, so also submitting to your husband is important. I've got um, ongoing needs, a need that you've had for a long time. And tonight I want us to read from the Bible about a woman who understood exactly how this felt. In Matthew 9, verse 20, I want to read to you about the woman who got the attention of Jesus. She was the woman with the issue of blood. Many of us know this, but I want us to climb into this scripture tonight and unpack it so that we may live in the benefit of her breakthrough. 
This is what it says in in uh, Matthew 9. Live in the benefit of her breakthrough. Now, before she gets to that, let's take a look at uh, the passage in context. Our three rules for sound biblical exegesis. If you're going to be tactical with the sword of the Spirit, which is the written word of God, Here's the idea. You got to look at things in context. So Matthew 9:18, while Jesus was saying these things to them, behold a ruler came and knelt before him saying, "My daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her, she will live." Jesus rose and followed him. By the way, the name of the fellow is Jairus. We know this from the cross references in the other synoptic gospels, and he was the synagogue ruler of Capernaum. So my daughter's just died, you know, she's going to live if you come and lay your hands on her. So behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garments. These are called the sitzeoth, and uh, Jesus being a Torah-observant Jew, and he needed to be in order to fulfill the law for us, uh, he wore the sitzeoth on the fringes of his uh, garment like all of the Jews of his time, and uh, so she basically came up and touched the sitzioth. And uh, she had said to herself, If only I touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players, the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, the cross reference gives us a little bit more. You're going to note this that each of the gospel writers writing on the, about the same events sometimes key in on a, on one thing or another but there's a there's far more going on there than what Matthew wrote in fact Matthew's version seems a little truncated yeah it does so uh, in the gospel of mark chapter 5 we have a fine cross reference here that gives us a little bit more fuller data and so Jesus, after crossing back uh, across the Sea of Galilee, after basically, you know, ex- exercising, yeah, you know, he was the, exercising the uh, the guy, the demoniac from the Gerasenes, exercising the legion of demons out of him. Yeah, after he came back, um, you know, we find out that uh, Jairus's daughter is like near death. And uh, here's what it says. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him. He was besides the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, seeing him fell at his feet and says, imploring him, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, lay your hand on her so that she may be weighed well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years who had suffered much under many physicians, who had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So we see in the cross-reference, we get a lot fuller information about this woman and her healing. Uh, She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind Jesus in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched me? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened uh, to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So she confessed. Now keep in mind, 
Uh, according to the Mosaic law, she is unclean. She has been unclean for 12 years. She's been unable to attend synagogue. That's like not being able to go to church for 12 years because she is unclean. And when you read this in the Greek, her condition is described as a scourge. I mean, this is a psychological and spiritual scourging that she feels that she's gone under for 12 years because she has been unclean. And so technically, she's not supposed to be touching Jesus because she's unclean. You, you kind of get the idea here. So Jesus says, who touched me? She totally comes unglued and uh, is trembling in fear, and she confesses the whole truth. And Jesus, rather than rebuke her, he speaks very kindly to her, and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease, and or be saved from the scourge is kind of how the Greek works. But you get the idea here. Now, this is an important concept. Faith always has an object. Faith is like eyesight. It has to look at something. You have faith in something. You have faith in someone. And so when Jesus says, your faith has made you well, the question is, uh, in whom did she have faith? Answer, she had faith in Jesus. And so that all plays into rightly exegeting this passage. And by the way, you know, they, they, he, Jesus ends up raising Jairus' daughter from the dead as well, because that's all wrapped up in the story. But Apparently, Hannah isn't all that interested in telling the whole story. She's going to turn this into some kind of a, you know, a, a tale that tells us the steps that we need to go through to experience breakthrough. And it's going to come on screen, verse 20. It says, just then, Jesus was walking. It says, just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, 12 years she had had this need came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her, take heart, daughter, he said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. Amazing. Now this woman, let me give you a bit of a backstory because she appears also in Mark. And in Mark, it gives us a little bit more detail. And it, it says that she had gone to doctors for 12 years. She had gone to many doctors and she had spent much money. And not only was she searching for something, but she had actually got worse. Her need had increased. It had got worse. And it says that Jesus was walking in a crowd. Walking in a crowd and people were crowding around him. And that day, something changed for her. That day she got her miracle. That day something changed. And I read it, and the way that I read the Bible is I climb into it, and I think about her breakthrough on behalf of us as a church for our breakthrough, and I thought, great, that's what I want. Uh, okay, now notice, she's taking a historical narrative and a descriptive text, and now she's going to turn this into a prescription for breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the reason why I chose this sermon for this episode of Fighting for the Faith in order to continue to drive home the point. What's, a dif what's the difference between a descriptive text versus a prescriptive text? For instance, you want a prescriptive text? Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not steal. These are 
prescriptions. Uh-huh. The, here's the story of a woman who was healed from a 12-year-long issue of blood. That's a descriptive text. There, are, there is no prescription that therefore, because she did this step and this step and this step and experienced breakthrough, now you too can have breakthrough if you follow the same steps that she did. This is taking a descriptive text and turning it into a prescriptive text. I've got many needs. I've got many things that I'm searching for. I I want that breakthrough. What happened? What can I learn about her life? How can I learn from it? And when I look at it, first of all, I thought, oh, I know, I know why. Maybe this is a Sunday school answer, but when I first started reading it, I thought, I know why. It was because she had brought her need into the presence of Jesus. First of all, that's what I was thinking. The text says it was because of her faith. Who did she have faith in? She had faith in Christ. That was faith well placed. But then I looked at it again and I remembered she was in a crowd. Jesus was in a crowd. There would have been many people in the crowd who had a need who were in the presence of Jesus. Okay, so maybe it wasn't just the fact that she was in the presence of Jesus. Well, why else? How else did she get her breakthrough? Maybe, you know, thinking about... How else did she get her breakthrough? About my daughter's thought pattern of how it's work. Maybe the coat of Jesus is magical. <laughs> and as she touched it, magic. No, because that can't work because the crowd were pushing in around her. Other people were also pushing into her. Maybe she was a special person who had, you know, um, access to the power of God in a way that other people didn't. But then I know that she didn't. The Bible talks about these women actually being outcasts because of the issue that she had. She would have been an outcast. She wasn't that. No. It says this. It says that Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Your faith has healed you. What set her apart from the crowd? What set her apart from the crowd? Set her apart from the crowd. When you read the text, the crowd was there because, you know, Jesus had just come back from across the Sea of Galilee, and then they were following him because, you know, Jairus had showed up and said that his daughter was at the point of death and that uh, he needed to come and save her. ...that I want us to learn about tonight is that she didn't just bring herself into the presence of Jesus. She didn't just bring her need to Jesus. She brought her faith to Jesus. Oh, man. So, yeah. So, there it is. There's the prescription. If you just bring your faith to Jesus, you too can get your breakthrough. No, that's not what this text is saying. And it makes me think about me and my need... And it makes me think, am I the crowd or am I her? What? No, that's not a great question, sir. That's an absurd question showing that she's not paying attention to the details. She's not qualified to be preaching, by the way. Yeah, that's right. Uh, for instance, uh, prescriptive text, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let a, lear- let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Mm -hmm. That's a prescriptive text. And its cross-references, by the way, is in 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 (laughs) explicitly says this, as in all the churches, verse 33 
in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the Torah also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. It's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Prescriptive text, by the way. How can I have faith like this woman? I understand that she had, had learned to... If you have faith in Jesus, you have faith like this woman. Live by faith and not by sight. She had learned to live in faith. I know that Philippians 4, it says that God can meet all my needs. Well, I want to live by faith. And early on, I learned as a child growing up in the church that 2 Corinthians 5 says that we live by faith and not by sight. And I remember reading that scripture and thinking, brilliant. How do I do it? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever heard a scripture that you thought, that's great. How do I apply it? How do I do that? And tonight I want us to step into this scripture and ask that question. How do we actually live by faith? How do we do it? Tomorrow, how do we not just say it, but how do we do it? And I think the key is in... How do we do it? You trust in Christ for the promises of the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. And you trust him to meet your needs. And when you are suffering or in need of something, you bring your petitions to Christ, trusting that he hears your prayers. Now, that doesn't mean he always says yes to your prayers, now does it? Uh-huh. Four words that were in this scripture, and this is what I want to talk to you about. These are the four words. Just then, a woman who came who'd been suffering from the issue of blood for 12 years, came up behind him and touched his cloak. She said to herself, she said to herself, she said to herself, she said to herself. Uh, okay. You see, like this woman in this room, I think everybody has a need. We all have needs, but also... We have something else in common. All of us are saying something to ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which commentary did you read after you translated this from uh, Greek into English and uh, made sure you were rightly handling the text? If you just went, I don't. You just did. <laughs> now you're arguing with me in your head. Because you're saying something to yourself. If this sermon, if this, if this preach had a title, it would be the conversation before the conversation. Because there is an internal dialogue that we all have in our minds. An internal commentary that runs alongside our lives that I want us to become aware of. And the question that I want us to keep in our minds today is this. What am I saying to myself? What am I What am I saying to myself? Saying to myself. It says, she said to herself. The Bible talks about how powerful our words are. Uh Uh-oh, I detect some verses coming out of context. Word of faith heresy time. I'm going to read you a scripture. Are you ready for this? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. It talks about God holding us accountable for our words. Okay. Matthew 12, 36 says, But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty, another translation says, careless word that they have spoken. 
Right. That doesn't say that our words have power to create breakthrough, which is what you're trying to argue at this point. In other words, the very thing that Jesus is warning about, speaking empty words, you're doing that right now, Hannah. Now I understand what I'll be doing for half of eternity. 20,000 words, girls. We speak 20,000 words on average a day. Men, 7,000. Are you joking? I know some men that speak a lot more than that. And yet scripture is clear that women are not to speak not even one word from the pulpit. That's why eternity is eternity for that scripture right there. Guys, all I'm saying is you better hope that you're in front of the line and not behind all the girls. I mean, that, that scripture is challenging enough when we think about the words that we'll have to be accountable to for what we've said to other people. But what about the things we've said to ourselves? Right. God's going to hold me accountable for every empty word I said to myself. <sighs> Clueless. What am I saying to myself? James 3 talks about that our words have the power of life and death are in our words. So the Bible talks about how powerful our words are. But it yeah, yeah, could I see that text in context, please? Also goes on to say this in Proverbs 4, 4 verse 23. It says, be careful what you think. Be careful what you think, so what you say to yourself, because your thoughts run your life. Proverbs 23 verse 7 says, For as he thinks, for as she thinks in his heart, so he is. The old Proverbs 23 verse 7, out of context, from an antiquated translation, the King James Let's put it in context. Here's what it says. Um, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. This is Proverbs 23, verse 6. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Uh Uh-huh. Or another really good way to translate the Hebrew here is, uh, for as he calculates in his soul, so is he. It does not teach that as you are inside of you, so you are, as if somehow it's teaching that your thoughts you know, come create reality. She's totally ripped this out of context. No surprise there. We continue. So we understand that our words are powerful, but now also we understand that the way we talk to ourselves, the way we think affects our external world. Yeah. Our internal dialogue, the conversation before any conversation affects our external world. It affects our lives. There is a conversation before every conversation. There is a commentary to your life. What am I saying to myself? Let me explain my life. I've got some helpers who are going to come up on stage. Oh, they're all jumping to their feet now. They're going to come on stage. Why don't you give them a round of applause as they come on? Run, guys. You're young. Come on. You can stand on the second step here. Second step down. 
Our words are powerful and our internal world, our internal dialogue, it affects our external world. So I want to explain this to you. You see, you see, what we have is the circumstances of our lives. Things that happen to us, these are outside of our control most of the time. These are completely outside of our control. And our circumstances, what they will do is they will trigger a thought in our head. You think about the things that happen to you. You think about the things you see. You think about... What is this that she's doing? This does not help us understand the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. About the things that are said to you. And it makes a thought in our head. So our thought will come into our head and over time as we continue to think that thought or maybe think similar thoughts, what will happen is it will become a mindset, something set in your mind. It will become the way you think, the filter that you see life through. This will become the conversation before the conversation is the commentary, the commentary that you hear the filter that you see. This is your internal world, but what's crazy is our mindsets actually affect and determine our actions in life, the things that we do. And the things that we do, when we do them often enough, they become our lifestyle or our habits. I'm going to give you an example. So is this about the power of mindset rather than the fact that this woman had faith in Christ? You know, our our circumstances, maybe something happens. Guys, maybe we fail an exam. Maybe we fail an exam or maybe we lose friendships. Maybe lose job, lose employment. Maybe there's some level of marriage breakdown. These are all different circumstances that could be in our lives. And what can happen is our thought... As a result of these circumstances, all of these things that happen, maybe the first one comes and the thought is, oh, failed an exam, I'm just, I'm just useless. Oh. And maybe the friends leave you and it's a similar thought of something like, I'm, oh, I'm, just, I'm just useless. I don't even want to be my friend. You lose your job and of course it starts to confirm this thought that you're having of, oh, What's wrong with me? I'm just useless. Or something along those lines, something that's a similar thought to it. Your marriage breaks down or your relationships breaks down or your family, something happens with it and the thought comes of, oh, I'm just just useless. And before long, this isn't just a thought anymore that pops into your mind. It's a mindset. Starts to become the way in which you see life. You don't just think I'm useless, but maybe you start to think something like, there's something wrong with me. I'm useless, but now there's something wrong with me. It's all your internal dialogue, the internal conversation. It's the filter now that you see your life through. You start to have conversations in light of this. You start to see circumstances with this commentary that there's something wrong with me. And maybe the action that comes out of that is it changes the way you act because you start to strive to improve yourself. You want to be better because there's something wrong with me. Everyone else seems to have got this life all together, but there's something wrong with me. So I've got to get better at this. I've got to become better. I need to gain approval from others because these guys, obviously, well, there's something wrong with me. So you start to gain approval from other people and and the habit that you start to, to slip into, the lifestyle that you start to slip into is people pleasing. 
Maybe multiple relationships because all you want is someone to approve you. Because your internal conversation, your internal dialogue is something wrong with me. There's a conversation before the conversation. We have to ask ourselves, what am I saying to myself? This is literally... The better question is, what are you telling these people? This doesn't help us understand the passage of Scripture in question at all. What you're saying is nonsense. Living by sight. You are living your life down here as a result of what you've seen, you've done, you've lived. This is living by sight. Do you know what the crazy thing is? Is that you could have a habit or a lifestyle that is based on a completely false and wrong thought. The thing is with our lifestyle and our habits, we actually think they're our personality. We think they're who we are. Have you ever thought that they could be all based on a wrong internal dialogue? A conversation that you're having with yourself that's incorrect? What are we saying to ourselves? What are you saying to yourself? She said to herself. She said to herself. Yeah, that's not the occasion for you to launch into some weird pop psychology lecture. So the woman who was suffering with this sickness for 12 years, she'd spent all her money, she'd been to see all the doctors, and she'd got worse, not better. I guess what I was thinking when I'm thinking about this woman is, well, I pretty much could guess what her internal conversation, her dialogue is like. I can kind of guess what it would be. In, in my head, I thought it would be this, that she, in Mark 5, it says that she heard about Jesus. She heard about Jesus, which would be the circumstance. And I would have thought she heard about the rabbi, heard about the healer. And she thought, oh, here's another person that thinks they can make me better. Yeah, that's not what it says in any biblical passage. Someone else that's going to con me and take my money. Because her mindset is, well, this is a lot for me. This is my life. This is how I am. Twelve. Yeah, uh, where in the biblical text does it say that's her mindset? I don't recall those verses. Of years I've been like this. I am a victim. This is how I am. So her action would be... Where does it say she said to herself, I'm a victim? I'd like to see that verse, please. Be She wouldn't even get up on that day. She wouldn't even make it out of her house. And her lifestyle? Hopeless victim. That's what I would have thought, thinking about this woman, thinking about the backstory that they've given us in the Bible. But when I read it, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. When I read it, somehow she managed to break through her internal conversation. Her inter- yeah, Where does it say she broke through her internal conversation? Because you're like adding stuff to the biblical text left and right now. Internal dialogue. She managed to break through the commentary of what I would have said would have been her life. She managed to break through it. And I think, how? How did she do that? I want to know how she did that. In 2 Corinthians 10, it says this. I think the answer is found here. It says, we, as in the followers of Christ, 
Christians. It says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every what? Is it on there? It's not on there, guys. We take captive every thought. We take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. I think this woman had learned to take captive every thought. I think she had understood the truth that sometimes you can't help your circumstances. Yeah, the weird irony there is that 2 Corinthians 10 is actually talking about the thing that Hannah's doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, uh, 2 Corinthians 10 Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. For instance, this whole mindset doctrine that Hannah is making up is a lofty opinion that is literally raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ, which would require her to repent, number one, of daring to preach in Christ's church, and number two, um, if she were ever teach anyone again the Scriptures, making sure she actually rightly handled the biblical text. Yeah, you see, that's kind of what's going on here. And then being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Yeah, what 2 Corinthians 10 is talking about is not an internal dialogue. It's about those who preach and teach opinions and things opposed to the knowledge of God. Can I tell you today that thing that happened to you was not your fault? Sometimes you can't control what happens to you. Oh, yeah. So you're just a victim. You're no longer a sinner. You're you're a victim. It's not your fault. You can't tr- control what you walk out the door and you see or that person says to you. You can't control that. And you know what? Sometimes you can't even control your immediate thought. Sometimes that comes. It's like in a, there. It's just there. But what 2 Corinthians says is this, that we can capture that thought. We can- yeah, no, actually, that's not what 2 Corinthians says at all. And the weird thing is, is that if you'd read 2 Corinthians, you'd have to take this lofty opinion captive and make it obedient to Christ because you're not rightly teaching this text. can take it captive. We can capture that thought. And we can make it obedient to Christ. Who is Christ? He is the Word of God. He is the living word of God. We can take it captive and make it obedient to the word. This is what the Bible says about the word of God. In Hebrews 4, this is the amplified amplified version. Yeah, the amplified is not a translation. It is a total twisting of what scripture says. I want to read it to you because this is incredible. It says, for the word that God speaks... The word of God is alive and full of power. It is sharper than a two-edged sword, penetrating to divide the line of the breath of life and the spirit and of joints and of marrow. Listen, exposing and sifting, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. Do you know what the word of God is? The word of God is a sift. It is a sift. It is, in another words, a filter. It is a filter. When you sift something, you sift the good from the bad. It is a filter of truth. 
When we have the word of God, where is my other helper? Jazz, jump up here. When we have the word of God, it means that we can capture every thought and we can put a filter in. Here. The word of God. (laughs) Absurd. I told Jazz she might get a clap, so thanks for that. A filter of the word of God. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says, number one, that the word of God is a sift. It is a filter. And number two, it says the word of God washes. Washes. Ephesians 5.25 says this, husbands love your wives. Wayne in the room? Husbands love your wives and buy them presents in brackets. (laughs) Hannah version. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, To make her holy, cleansing her, listen, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Yeah, that's actually talking about baptism. And to present her to himself as a radiant bride, the radiant church, without stain or wrinkle and any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The word washes us. I love it because the word of God is this. When circumstances happen and the thoughts come, the word gives us an ability to hold up our thought to the light and say, God, is this what you think of me? God, if this is your truth, how does my thought go to align in this? But if you're like me, you're thinking, oh gosh, I've already got mindsets that are probably incorrect. But that's where the washing comes in because it says that the word of God, it washes us. It washes our mindset. As we meditate, the word of God washes our mindset. That's not what Ephesians 5 says. You're making stuff up, Hannah. On the word and we practice his promises day and night. We think over his word and we read his word and we digest his word. It not only creates us a filter that we can hold our thought patterns up to and say, God, is this what you would have me say to myself? Is this what you would have me think? Is this what you want me to dwell on? But also it dislodges our mindsets. And it washes us. It washes our mindsets. It washes away the internal conversation, the, the chatter, the, the dialogue, the commentary that you hear every time you look at things. There's a commentary that you maybe are so used to, you think it's you. You think it's just you. But it's not. It's not. It washes, it purifies. But when we put the filter of the word of God in, we stop living by sight. We stop living by the circumstances that we find ourselves in because this is what it says. It says that when we, Romans 10 verse 17, it says faith comes through hearing and hearing the word. When we put our filter of the word of God in, do you know what happens? Faith comes. Faith comes. (laughs) Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That's in the context of evangelism. She is not qualified to teach anybody. She has not studied and showed herself approved. On top of the fact, Scripture forbids women from preaching. So when we're, we're thinking about... We're holding up the truth of God and we're saying, God, am I useless? Am I useless? 
the word of God that would come and I'd say, God, I'm thinking this because these things happened to me and these circumstances have told me this. God, I think I'm useless. Am I, am I useless, God? And then you remember, no, because Ephesians 2.10 says that I am his workmanship. I am God's workmanship. I am not useless. God created me. And when these thoughts come, the mindset gets changed because we've filtered. No, I'm a, there's not something wrong with me. None of this has anything to do with the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. We're learning a lot about the internal dialogue of Hannah. You know, nothing about what the text says. Me. There is not something wrong with me. I am made and wanted by God. And when we put the filter in, it doesn't just cleanse us. It doesn't do swash us. But what happens is our mindset starts to, faith rises. Our internal dialogue, our internal conversation, the commentary of our lives becomes faith. We start what? to not live by what we can see, but we start to live by faith. Church, this is living by faith. This is... You have no idea what you're talking about. These words are totally empty. Is living by faith. Taking captive every thought and holding it up. Is this what you say, God? And it starts by asking the question, what are you saying to yourself? She said to herself, she said to herself, what are you saying to yourself? To take captive every thought, you first have to become aware of what you are saying, what you are thinking. You see, living by sight for this woman would have said, living by sight would have said, sit down woman, there is nothing here for you. You heard about Jesus, there's nothing here for you. But living by faith would have said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Living by faith would have said, I'm his daughter. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. What does faith want to say in your life? Because what happens is... What does faith want to say in my life? What? Is this, it changes the way you act. and It changes your lifestyle. It changes your habits. Oh, imagine a church... Imagine a church who knew and meditated on the word of God, who put the filter of the word of God, whose commentary was faith. Oh, I hear what you're saying, circumstances. I understand what people's actions are, but what my commentary, what my mindset, what my faith says is this. And therefore, what my actions will be is faith-filled. The woman reached through the crowd. She pushed through everything that said she shouldn't be there. She pushed through it all and she reached out and she said, Jesus, I need a miracle. I need a breakthrough. And she pushed through it and her lifestyle. Yeah, actually, she didn't say anything. She snuck up behind him. It changed. She was healed and she was whole. She walked in a different way. She was reunited. Can you imagine that moment when she went home and held her children because she was allowed back into the village? For his glory, for his glory. Oh, can you imagine a church that lives by faith? For his glory in our city. For his glory. You may say, well, I don't know the word. I have so many thoughts, Hannah. But you know the great thing about the Holy Spirit is you can say, Holy Spirit, just illuminate one thought. 
illuminate one thought. And then you may say, well, I'm not sure I know every scripture there is to do with these thoughts. Well, get into the word. Yes, get in the word so you can learn thoughts. Yeah. Start meditating over what you know, meditating the scripture you know. Go to your life group leader and say, I'm thinking this and I've realized I've thought it for a long time. Will you help me find a scripture? We have devotions, Audacious Church, we have devotions that the team work hard to write and they go to your inbox, your email every morning. You can just read it, read the word and allow it to wash your mindset. Allow it to... Yeah, let the devotional thoughts written by Audacious Church wash your mindsets. Yeah, what cycle do you set that on? Delicate? Capture your thoughts. In Joshua, it talks about, Joshua 1 verse 8, it says, Meditate on my word day and night. Before I understood this, I didn't understand why I needed to meditate on it. It's because I need to know it. I need it to be my internal conversation. I need it to be when I'm just here talking to myself. It's not a good conversation. But when the word of God comes in and I hear his voice and I hear his word. He brings breakthrough that I cannot bring. He brings truth that I cannot bring. Stay in his presence. Someone would just write a book about that. Yeah. Yeah, where can I go to hide from God's presence? Aren't I always in it? (laughs) If you haven't read it, it's about meditating, staying in the word, staying in his presence. This is Living by Faith. All right. So that was Hannah Adkins, and I I have no idea what that was. Uh, The one thing I'd know for sure it wasn't was the right handling of God's word. She was just making stuff up and, you know, basically shoehorning the uh, word of faith heresy into the midst of this text that she didn't even tell the story. Yeah, it's uh, so frustrating. And yet, uh, yeah, these are, you know, audacious churches, one of these churches claiming to be directly led by the Holy Spirit. And yet, what they say and what they do contradicts the written Word of God. Straight up. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. Vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.